Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One seventy-four members have recorded their votes in favor of the resolution. Consequently, the resolution for vote of no confidence against Mr. Imran Khan, the Prime Minister of Islamic Republic of Pakistan, has been passed by a majority of the total membership of the National Assembly. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Earlier this week, Pakistani legislators backed a no-confidence vote that ended Prime Minister Imran Khan's government. A new Premier, Shehbaz Sharif, assumed power a few days later. We'll talk today about what comes next and the challenges Pakistan's new government faces at home and abroad. Imran Khan's party didn't let his premiership go quietly. They chanted, we want freedom, a reference to what they claim is American interference in the change of regime before resigning en masse and walking out of the assembly. Imran Khan accuses the US of orchestrating his removal from power. He claims a note from Pakistan's then ambassador to Washington lays out details of the plot. In reality, that note appears to be a standard diplomatic cable, reporting a meeting between the ambassador and US officials. Since the no-confidence vote, parliamentarians from what was Imran's ruling party left the National Assembly. Thousands of supporters have taken to the streets across Pakistan, expressing fury at his political rivals and at the West. A day after Imran Khan is ousted from power, his supporters have heeded his call to take to the streets. And they are angry. Imran Khan's relations with the US and other Western powers have become increasingly strained. The former Pakistani premier had often harshly criticised Western policy and interference in Pakistan's affairs. For their part, Western capitals have been frustrated at Pakistan's apparent inability to influence the Taliban since it captured power last year in Afghanistan. Imran Khan's visit to Moscow on the day that Russia invaded Ukraine had hardly helped. Two Cold War rivals are now burying their past. Imran Khan landed in Russia for a two-day visit, the first such trip by a Pakistani prime minister in 23 years. The visit is ill-timed, to say the least. 
Shabaz Sharif's new government inherits a daunting set of challenges. There's the potential standoff with Imran Khan and his supporters. The economy's floundering. Militant attacks have been on the rise, with the Pakistani Taliban making a comeback in Pakistan's border areas, seemingly using safe havens in Afghanistan. Plus, any Pakistani civilian government has to coexist and contend with Pakistan's powerful military. Abroad, Sharif has to navigate ever choppier geopolitical waters. He'll have to repair relations with the West, whose support he needs with aid and in international financial institutions, while keeping on board China, important for investment and infrastructure, all the while avoiding a flare-up Islamabad can ill afford with Pakistan's archenemy India. So I'm really thrilled that today we get to talk about all this with Crisis Group trustee Ahmed Rashid. I think most listeners will know that Ahmed is really among the top experts on South Asia. His biography is far too rich to do justice to here, but over several decades he's published some of the most influential books on the region, including on the Taliban in Afghanistan, on Central Asia and on his home country, Pakistan. He's won countless awards for his journalism and his scholarship. Ahmed is joining us today from his home in Lahore in Pakistan and I can actually hear in the background Ahmed the birds in your garden. So thank you really so much for for, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So why don't we start with uh, Imran Khan himself? I mean, he's he's out of power, but not it seems out of politics. I mean, how, how disruptive a force do you expect him to be in the in the months ahead? Well, I think he's going to be enormously disruptive, uh, and I'm reminded very much of of Donald Trump after January sixth. Imran is a person who's denied the constitution. He's refused to accept a vote of no confidence. Um, he's berated uh, foreign powers for intervening in Pakistan's affairs, the United States in particular. Uh, it, it's a very Trumpian kind of di- dialogue and um, uh, mission that he set out on. And he's, he's going to have three major rallies in the next few days in three different cities. Um, so clearly he's not giving up. He wants to pursue this and to prove that, you know, he was right and that he should be given a second chance. And as we heard, his former ruling party MPs have walked out of parliament. So it really looks as though he's going to take his politics to the streets. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that is his intention. He's given a warning already that um, he, he has been in the past uh, extremely good at mobilising uh, people in the street. And, and you know, I mean, we should remember that even though he's been ousted and there's a, 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 a large majority of people who are against him, he still has a, a, a bedrock of support, especially amongst young people, amongst women, uh, amongst the middle class. And they're the ones who are probably going to turn out uh, for him in, in the next few days and weeks. Indeed, and, and seeing some of the pictures of protests, it's striking how many young people and, and, and how many women and, and seemingly from different social backgrounds are on the streets. Imran Khan's messaging, well, I mean, a lot of it is anti-establishment, as you say, uh, anti-corruption, um, but it's also tended to be very conservative uh, and Islamist. How broad a base does he actually have and what's the appeal? Well, you know, it's it's a hodgepodge. I mean, he was the reflection of liberalism, multiple girlfriends, multiple wives. Um, you know, extremely active in the on the social scene, uh, and and now he's become this Islamist, uh, married to uh, a, a lady who keeps herself covered the whole time, 
And um, it's a complete contradiction in terms. But this is somehow, um, I think a lot of the young people who are basically middle class um, uh, have memories of Imran as a younger man when he was an icon. And uh, there are also uh, conservative elements who are supporting him now. I mean, conservative women who would not come out into the street for anyone else except possibly for Imran. And he's now seen as somebody... Uh, pure and good and sufficiently Islamized, um, you know, to uh, ac- to accept uh, the support of conservative women. So he's pl- he's got both ends of the spectrum, as it were, and uh, uh, and young people is the same. He's got both the, the the students at madrasas and and who are at religious schools, and he's also got the computer savvy uh, young kids of today. And what should we make of his allegations about U.S. involvement in efforts to oust him? He's cited this plot. He's talked about a, a letter from what well, Pakistan's then ambassador to Washington. But the note that he referenced seems like a fairly sort of innocuous standard diplomatic cable. Is this really all just an attempt to shift blame? Yes. I mean, I think most people who don't like him in, uh, in particular do believe that it is um, uh, a an attempt to fudge uh, the whole issue of his removal. He, of course, was, you know, I mean, in the last few days, he's refused to accept any kind of a defeat, as it were. And it's now become not an American conspiracy, but an international conspiracy of countries and peoples and heads of state who are trying to thwart his attempts to uh, retain power. And um, again, very Trumpian, if, if, if you see what I mean. And uh, we, we are... Uh, faced with the situation, and frankly, I think this was a normal diplomatic cable. Uh, the Pakistan ambassador meeting U.S. officials who gave a very negative picture of U.S.-Pakistan relationship, which is very well known. Uh, Biden blames a lot of the um, uh, the mess in Afghanistan on Pakistan's failure to rein in the Taliban. Um, and uh, the Pakistani uh, politicians and army who have been anti-American uh, have become more so um, because they feel they're being unjustly blamed uh, for what is not their responsibility. So he, he's touching a raw nerve here and, uh, and he's doing it very well as far as his politics are concerned. And we'll come in a moment to relations with the US and, of course, Pakistan's relations with the Taliban and and with Afghanistan. But this anti-Western, anti-US sentiment, this is something that resonates, right? I mean, it's quite easy for a politician to capitalise on that. And there's been these large protests, burning of US flags in different cities and big protests where you are as well in Lahore over the past couple of days. Yes, I mean, uh, that's absolutely correct. And of course, he's benefited from it immediately. And the fact is that, you know, you can whip up an anti-US protest almost anywhere in the Muslim world at any given time, Um, whether it's Pakistan or the Middle East or uh, the Far East, uh, it's not difficult. And uh, he certainly has realized that and is is using this. I mean, uh, uh, basically, uh, a fake... uh, condemnation of U.S.-Pakistan policy through this letter. So, I mean, I think most people feel it's been done precisely to uh, uh, defend himself and to show that, you know, he's been victimized, 
not the country, but himself. And, you know, there is this tremendous ego he's got uh, and, and belief in himself. Um, that is also very Trumpian. And uh, he's absolutely uh, convinced of his own infallibility, as it were. And the relations between Imran Khan and the military, I mean, this, this seems to have undergone a, a sort of evolution as well. I mean, initially, the generals helped or, or even enabled his ascent to power some years ago. But over recent years, or at least over recent months, he appears to have sort of fallen foul of, of, of them. And in the end, they stood aside during efforts by the opposition to, to oust him. I mean, is that fair? I mean, and if so, what explains the military's change of hearts, that he was becoming a liability or, or presenting a threat to the military itself? Well, there are two levels of this discussion. The first level is what we see on the surface, which is that uh, the, I think the army chief, General Bajwa, has become very embarrassed because he was the one who brought Imran in three years ago. And it, it, there was very clear rigging of the elections in his favor, in Imran's favor. And consequently, he's being blamed now. Well, you brought him in, and now look, he's become such a hopeless prime minister, and you get him out now, as it were. Uh, I think there are a lot of people in the military and in the establishment who are, are saying that uh, under their breaths. But the other level is that uh, um, uh, Imran Khan had become very dependent on the former chief of the inter-services intelligence, ISI, which is Pakistan's uh, military intelligence uh, and uh, a very powerful uh, uh, group of people. And uh, he had supported uh, General Faiz Amin, who was the former ISI chief. I, he had wanted him to come in, uh, to stay as ISI chief, and then eventually come in as army chief and continue to support Imran Khan. Because General Bajwa's term is up sometime later this, this year? Exactly. His, his term is up later this year. And there's a lot of speculation that he may be looking for an extension to his service, but he's already had one extension and it's difficult to imagine that he would have another. And that, in essence, is the, the head of all of Pakistan's armed forces. It's an enormously powerful, arguably the most powerful position in Pakistan. Yes, and especially given the fact that, you know, the army has ruled Pakistan to seize power three or four times and rule Pakistan for more time in, it, in its existence than um, civil governments have ruled. So the army is incredibly powerful. And Imran was supporting uh, this general, Faiz Hamid, to be the next chief. And uh, that's something that has really irked, I think, the military high command, because nobody messes around in the army or should try and promote their own people, especially not a civilian um, who, who, who really does not carry that kind of clout with the military. And I think, you know, Imran misread the situation um, and, and went ahead with, with the plan to bring back General Faiz Amin as head of the army and make sure that General Bajwa didn't get an extension. So there's all this going on also at, at, the, at, at another level. Um, and, and the third level is that, you know, there's a lot of criticism of the military's interference and the fact that there's a huge economic crisis when we have this enormous military to feed and fund, which of course has been very um, useful in combating India and thwarting India's aims, uh, in, uh, uh, imagined aims at least, against Pakistan, but it, it r remains an incredible drain on resources. 
And there seems to have also been a, a divergence between Imran Khan and the military about his position on Ukraine. I mean, people probably remember he was in Moscow the day that Russian forces sort of rolled en masse across the Ukrainian border. He made these awkward comments about it being an interesting time to be there. And it seems that the top military was uncomfortable with that. Bajwa himself actually subsequently condemned the Russian invasion. Has that also been a divergence that in the end, the army is uncomfortable with the very confrontational stand that Imran Khan was taking toward, again, as you say, not just the US, but the West more broadly? Yes, I mean, Imran has very little idea of foreign policy. He's made enormous foreign policy blunders. The need to balance uh, the relationship with China, uh, with the US. The fact is China, China, as you know, with the Belt and Road policy, is building enormous projects here, power generation, roads, railways, etc. And... um, uh, and 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 a, a diplomatic finesse was certainly needed. Um, the the visit to to Russia was being termed as a breakthrough because uh, Russia has has uh, for for a very long time been extremely close to India has has not been friendly to Pakistan, and here was an invitation to try and change that whole orbit. And so there was a lot of t- support for him going to uh, Russia anyway, and uh, which was obviously very wrongly fed because it, it affected the Western world, the Americans, at a time when Pakistan is uh, facing a huge economic crisis and is dependent on uh, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, the EU, etc., for funding um, uh, and to avert a balance of payments crisis. There's a $9 billion deficit at the moment that money has to be found this year um, to pay off uh, Western creditors. And I think General Bajwa was very much aware of that and uh, he didn't want to spoil his relations with the US. Um, and especially uh, Imran also gave a lot of flack over the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, he supported the withdrawal, but um, he's criticized the way it was carried out, like a lot of others have done. Um, but right now, I think most Pakistanis would say whatever... The anger might be at the U.S. Nobody can afford to jeopardize the relationship simply because uh, we need money, and uh, and that money is uh, not available anywhere else except through uh, you know the the American support for the IMF and other institutions to lend that money. Alpine, could you say a word or two about the, the the new government itself? I mean, it's what it led by new prime minister is uh, Shabazz Sharif, uh, Pakistani Muslim League Nawaz. He's the brother of uh, former Premier Nawaz Sharif. Uh, it's a coalition government, though, so also comprising the the PPP, the Pakistani People's Party, now headed by Benazir Bhutto's son, Bilawal Bhutto Zadawi, and an Islamist party as well. I mean, these are three parties that have not traditionally been sort of the best of friends, but have seen common cause in in getting rid of of Imran. How do you see them working together in government? Well, the new government is going to face a huge um, multiple prong crisis on many levels. But certainly, I think, you know, you've highlighted the main one, which is will they stick together? Uh, Will they manage together? The fact that they've agreed upon a, a, a compromise prime minister, who is Nawaz Sharif's brother, is is a positive sign, uh, and certainly I hope they they do hang together. 
And as long as Imran is out there accusing them of betraying Pakistan and being part of an American plot, etc., uh, they, they possibly will um, be able to hang together. Um, which means, of course, the cabinet is going to be drawn from all three major parties um, and the, the potential or possibility of, of division between them is, is, is very, very real. Um, but let me just say a few words about um, uh, Sharif. I mean, he was for, for many years and three times he has been the chief minister of Punjab province, which is the largest and most uh, important province in Pakistan. And um, he's always had a very good relationship with the IMF, with the World Bank, who've praised him for his um, social welfare projects in Punjab, which includes uh, he, he got a huge loan from Britain and the EU to carry out educational reforms and improve literacy the last time he was chief minister. So he's going to use his contacts, I think, to try and um, you know bridge the financial gap in, in Pakistan. And he's a known figure in development circles, unlike most other Pakistani politicians. He's actually interested in development and social issues and has been good on, on uh, trying to achieve them. Um, but, uh, of course, now he's got to think of the whole country and he's got to think of the uh, massive amount of debt that Pakistan now has to deal with. And relations between Nawaz Sharif, uh, Shibaz's brother, and the military have been strained, to say the least, right? I mean, Nawaz has been ousted by the military before. How are relations between Shebaz Sharif and the military? I mean, are they better? Has he done much to woo the generals? Um, Nawaz Sharif, you know, has been prime minister several times, and each time he has been thrown out because of uh, a worsening relationship with the military, who have forced him out. Now, Shabazz Sharif, fortunately, has avoided that um, uh, nomenclature really by ducking and keeping his head down when there has been a confrontation with the military. So the military is not opposed to him as such and they, are, they certainly understand and appreciate the fact that he is um, uh, uh, very good on development and economics and, and hoping that his friendship with the major world institutions will um, uh, help Pakistan along. So the, the the army has uh, is very reluctant to allow any of the Sharifs back into power. And waiting in the wings is Nawaz Sharif's daughter, Maryam Sharif. Um, and we already have the fact that uh, um, Shabazz Sharif has appointed his son to be the next chief minister of Punjab if the vote goes through for him. So the Sharifs are still pursuing a very dynastic kind of uh, policy, much like the Bhuttos. Um, have done in Pakistan, and uh, like the Gandhis have done in India in the past. So these dynastic families ruling and governing and uh, and, and taking control uh, do continue. And a lot of people, it must be said, are completely fed up with this. One thing um, Shabazz is praised by all people is that he's a very good administrator. And, you know, that was shown the first his first day in office a couple of days ago. He arrived at the office at 7 o'clock in the morning which completely shocked everyone uh, who, you know, I mean, bureaucrats don't get out of bed till 10 o'clock at least. And uh, he's ordered everyone to report in at eight, by 8 o'clock. And he's cut the, the weekend by one day. And so it's quite a sea change if he can pursue this. Um, and also if he can deal with the issue of corruption, which is he and the Sharifs are all charged with multiple 
um, acts of corruption, which they deny. Um, but he has to find a solution to this issue because that is Imran Khan's main gambit, which is that all these politicians are corrupt as hell and I'm the only one who doing, was doing something about it, which is why they wanted me out. And do you think the fact that it's a coalition government will make it harder to enact some of the necessary sort of reforms, both ahead of the elections, there's elections reforms, I understand, on the cards, but also to take some of the measures you talked about against corruption? Well, the corruption issue is going to be very tricky because, uh, I mean, there's nobody amongst the political elite who's not been accused of corruption at one point or the other. And uh, he, will, he will have to have a, find a, a policy uh, towards uh, the guilty ones uh, which does not condemn the whole system to paralysis. That's what happened with Imran. Uh, uh, by accusing everyone, everyone literally, of corruption, one way or the other, and having investigative bodies uh, dig out um, scandals of people who'd made a lot of money, uh, the, the the government came to a standstill. Nobody would work. People would just uh, come into office in the morning and have a cup of tea and, and, and hang around, but not really the, the files that government is notorious for would never move from one desk to the other because people were so scared that they would uh, get named or, or they would be involved in the latest scandal. So um, Shabazz Sharif is, is not likely to pursue such a, such a hardline policy. But clearly something has to be done because um, uh, corruption is a big popular issue amongst people um, and uh, uh, to do nothing would be to give Imran a clean chit, as it were, and to um, allow him to take control of the uh, sentiment towards corruption. Um, so w- what is needed is, is, is a more balanced policy, which uh, Shabazz Sharif has to find. And you mentioned the economy, which, as you say, is in a terrible state. I mean, there's rampant inflation, inflation that predated the, the Ukraine war, but presumably the, the war and the, and, and the sanctions on Russia, um, presumably that's going to make things even more difficult for the Pakistani economy. You mentioned that, that uh, Shabazz can ideally improve relations with the West, which could unlock assistance from the international financial institutions. But how much beyond that of the economy is sort of within his control and how much is, is really captive to, to these geopolitical changes? Well, I mean, that's really, uh, you know, a, a difficult question to answer. Um, I, I, you know, given the present crisis, Ukraine, um, Afghanistan, and um, and and the need for help in so many multiple places at the same time puts Pakistan really at the bottom of the list for for the time being. But Pakistan is, you know, remains very important to the West because it's a nuclear power and it it it, it can't be ignored. And um, Pakistan has become quite adept at using a kind of uh, nuclear pressure on the West, telling countries that, look, if you don't help us and we go under, uh, what happens to our nuclear weapons, etc. So the real crisis is, is, is coming from different directions. For example, Afghanistan. Afghanistan consumes enormous amount of Pakistan's agricultural production. Uh, wheat, sugar, everything is smuggled into Afghanistan uh, without duties being paid. 
and uh, and and that's a huge liability. Uh, at the same time, the uh, uh, we import wheat from uh, Russia and Ukraine, which is obviously going to be affected now, as in, has affected many countries in, in around the world. Uh, and and then of course there's the overall economic stagnation which has been going on for years and years, uh, which is not the fault of Imran Khan, uh, and the fact that you know we've not been able to uh, develop our our agriculture uh, to 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 make uh, sufficient export crops uh, which would earn foreign exchange. Um, industrial production is still dependent on textiles, which is the only major source of. Uh, external revenue. Um, we've never branched out into other areas, other fields, um, and uh, a lot of the money that is being generated in Pakistan is taken to the Gulf uh, and invested there rather than in in Pakistan itself. So there are a whole series of problems uh, that need to be addressed and that are interlocking. So um, it's again a very difficult policy decisions will have to be made by Shabazz Sharif. So, Ahmed, before we move to foreign policy, though, you know, as you much as you say, much of this is interlocking. It's hard to disentangle foreign and, and and domestic policy. But before we talk explicitly about Pakistan's foreign affairs, could we say a word or two about another big challenge at, at home that again has big implications for Pakistan's relations with the outside world, which is uh, Islamist militancy, the array of jihadist militant groups that operate on Pakistan's soil. I think in the first three months of this year, the number of people killed in militant attacks in Pakistan was something like double, perhaps even more, the number of people that were killed in the same period last year. Now, some of these have been due to a resurgence of the Pakistani Taliban, which I'd like to come to in a moment, uh, especially when we talk about Afghanistan. But part of it is related to the Islamic State, to ISIS, or, or what ISIS calls its Khorasan province. Could you maybe say a few words about ISIS itself and about Islamist militancy more broadly? There are an estimated at least one dozen groups operating in Pakistan who reflect uh, right across the Islamist spectrum, as it were. Uh, people who are killing Shias because they are believed to be non-believers, groups that are um, uh, attacking Afghans uh, that are based on sectarianism, um, and uh, and of course, then the remnants of those groups who were fighting in Kashmir in the last decade, uh, at the behest of the Pakistani military, um, and uh, those groups continue to survive. Uh, and so, you know, there's a vast array of groups, and Pakistan has played host to the Taliban all those years that uh, the Taliban were out in the wilderness, and so there's been this interconnection between Afghanistan and Pakistan that has proved lethal for both countries. Um, and uh, frankly, I mean, the military has not been able to get to grips with this properly, even though we have this vast, huge military, um, and yet there has not been a, a, a real cleaning up operation being carried out effectively. Um, and partly that is because over the years, uh, some of these groups continue to be used by the Pakistani establishment. Whether, for example, the Taliban leadership was entirely based in Pakistan, and that was supposed to give Pakistan leverage um, over a future settlement between the Taliban and the Afghan government. Um, and it hasn't led to that at all. Um, and and uh, the same goes for militants who've been fighting in Kashmir against Indian forces. 
um, the the Pakistani state can't just put these people to sleep. Um, they have to accommodate them in some way, and uh, and and that has also proved to be ruinous because they've joined ISIS, uh, they've joined the Pakistani Taliban. ISIS has. Um, you would think that with all these other militant groups in Pakistan, including the Pakistani Taliban, ISIS would not be very powerful or effective. But ISIS is a kind of rejectionist group. Everybody, uh, anybody who rejects other groups for whatever reason or thinks that they've grown too soft, um, they, they veer towards ISIS. Uh, ISIS remains vehemently anti-American, anti-Western, anti-Shia, and so it has an attraction uh, for anybody fed up. And most, most of ISIS recruits have actually come from a new generation of militants, but also from the former Taliban, who believe that the, uh, the Taliban now in power in Kabul is too soft, they are betraying their principles, um, and so ISIS is the alternative to join. Militancy remains a, a very difficult situation uh, in Pakistan, and um, of course, this does not help the uh, idea of you know g- gaining foreign investment and even encouraging the 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 big uh, uh, lending agencies to come to Pakistan, because we still have not sorted out the militancy problem. Do you think it's fair to say that, um, broadly speaking, as you say, there's there's uh, these many groups in Pakistan, but broadly speaking, there are groups that target the Pakistani state and those that don't. And in the former category, you have the Pakistani Taliban and you have ISIS, although ISIS focuses also very much on the Shia, very sectarian. And in the latter group, in principle, you have the anti-India groups that have traditionally operated in Kashmir, though for the moment, as you say, they're not active. Um, so Lashki Taiba, Jaish Mohammed, although they call themselves different things now. But the problem the Pakistani state has is that the groups rub shoulders with each other. They train together in the tribal areas or they fight together in Afghanistan. And it's very difficult to have a policy where you indulge some groups, but then try to take action against others. I mean, do you think that's a fair description of the dilemma that the Pakistani state faces? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, we've had this two, uh, two-rung policy, as it were, even the, t- towards the Afghan Taliban. We were with them, then we're not with them. Um, and, and certainly with the Kashmiri groups who are made up, uh, partly of Kashmiris, but largely of Pakistani militants themselves. Um, it's, it's been a, a very, you know, it's been this game of trying to ride two horses at the same time. And that has proved in, uh, incredibly negative and difficult. Uh, for the Pakistan state to maintain. And increasingly, there's enormous Western pressure on Pakistan to end this policy uh, and, and, and stop this uh, attempt to both satisfy the West and at the same time support extremism. And Pakistan, I think, is moving towards trying to have a negative policy to all extremists, but it has not really spelt this out adequately. Um, so uh, we still have a situation where m- many groups are banned and, and are rejected by the state. And then there are groups that are clandestinely uh, tolerated and, and uh, given a, a safe haven, as it were, uh, within Pakistan. And, you know, people are, uh, governments have not come out adequately and strongly enough against uh, the sectarian killing, for example, that's rampant. And many of these casualties that you mentioned are a result of sectarian killings. 
we haven't come to grips with this. And uh, that's what is needed if you want to attract foreign investment and foreign loans. And so if we move to Afghanistan and Islamabad's relations, maybe we could first go back to, to, to last year, what in, in August when the Taliban swept into power. Now, that didn't seem to be, certainly not officially, but it didn't seem genuinely to be Pakistan's preferred option, that the Pakistani military, the government, appeared to be pushing for a negotiated settlement, that it saw an arrangement where the Taliban shared power with other Afghan factions and thus enjoyed international legitimacy and, importantly, development aid. That would have been a better outcome for Pakistan, that you wouldn't have had this semi-pariah government in Kabul. I mean, do you think that's a fair way to describe what Pakistani policy was at the time? You see, at the beginning, uh, just before the Taliban takeover, the Taliban were hugely dependent on Pakistan for safe haven, for ammunition, for being able to bring in guns and all the, the rest of it. So, um, uh, and, and there was this belief that the Pakistanis would control the Taliban and help the Taliban establish a proper government, relax some of their strident um, Islamist measures, etc. And Pakistan also believed uh, the military in particular, that there was a group of countries who would recognize the Taliban along with Pakistan, which included Russia, Iran, China, countries friendly to Pakistan and would listen to Pakistan. Now, none of this happened. None of this was actually implemented because um, the, the Taliban, first of all, refused to compromise and they were seen as intransigent about their um, uh, lack, lack of willingness to deal with education and women's issues and other other problems. Um, and secondly, a lot of these other countries backed off from uh, supporting Pakistan and any any sense of early recognition of the Taliban regime. Um, and these countries had believed that Pakistan was controlling the Taliban and they would be able to get the Taliban to do the right thing, which of course never developed because the Taliban being fiercely independent were not going to listen to anyone, even their great benefactor, Pakistan. So, um, frankly, pa- Pakistan's whole policy at that at that point in time um, uh, really collapsed. Uh, we were not able to help the West uh, uh, improve uh, the Taliban's legitimacy or get them to do the right thing. So, and and right now, uh, I think you know Pakistan has done the sensible thing. It hasn't rushed into recognition. It has tried to keep uh, keep itself in the background, as it were, but uh, it is still a major player with the Taliban. Um, and uh, it is still hoping that one thing it should be able to do, if the Americans allow it, is to bring Taliban on board. Um, I think the West is getting very frustrated with Pakistan because uh, Pakistan is not being able to deliver on, on uh, improving the image of the Taliban. You think that Pakistan might have hoped that countries would recognize the Taliban, even despite the fact that it took hold of power militarily rather than as part of a settlement? Yes, and and the belief that Pakistan could somehow tamper down the extremist uh, uh, measures of the Taliban, this would be a different Taliban. And quite frankly, I mean, it's, it's not a very different Taliban to what they kind of government they had in the 1990s, which I saw very, you know, very close up. Um, uh, and and I think you know the whole the whole problem again that Pakistan uh, Pakistan has been faced with with the Taliban is that remember the Taliban have played host to all these militant groups, many of them which are anti-Pakistan. Had they allowed them to attack 
Pakistani positions and Pakistani soldiers. So um, that has not helped the image of the Taliban and it's certainly not helped uh, Pakistan because it's not taking adequate measures. If you remember, the, the heart of the Doha agreement with the Taliban and the Americans was that the Taliban would not allow any foreign groups to attack neighboring states. Well, I mean, exactly that is happening right now. And so, in reality, how much influence does Islamabad and the military establishment, I mean, how much influence do they actually have over the Taliban in Pakistan? What has, has several interests in Afghanistan, one of them being that the Afghan state doesn't collapse, that it gets Western aid to keep it afloat. But another, as you say, core interest is that Afghanistan is not used as a staging post by Pakistani militants, and particularly the Pakistani Taliban to attack Pakistan itself. I mean, the Pakistani military ousted, for the most part, the Pakistani Taliban from the tribal areas, largely defeated them some years ago. But now it appears that attacks are escalating again and that the Pakistani Taliban is benefiting from Taliban rule in Afghanistan, despite that, as you say, in, in Doha, the Taliban had agreed that when in power in Afghanistan, it would not allow foreign militants to use Afghanistan for attacks abroad. Plus now, I mean, maybe to, to add that you have this other challenge, which was revealed by the Taliban's recent decision on girls' education, that girls' schools would stay closed. It, it seems there's you know, some difference between Taliban leaders and ministers in Kabul, some of whom appeared to recognise that they needed to move in that direction for their foreign relations. And a very conservative emir in Kandahar, Hebatullah Khonzada, who is actually making the decisions and that is much less susceptible to any sort of influence from the outside. This is exactly what happened in the 90s. You know, you had Mullah Omar sitting in Kandahar dictating the, everything according to religious philosophy and religious ideology. Uh, and then you had the government. There was a proper government, Taliban government in Kabul, uh, which really didn't have the decision-making power. Uh, and, and the Taliban have just repeated that. The other most important factor, I think, has been this question of ideology. The Taliban ideology is a very extreme interpretation of Deobandi Islam, which is a sect of um, the Sunni tradition. The Taliban have interpreted it in a very extreme way. Now, none of that has changed. And uh, uh, I think for a lot of foreign powers, there's been a lot of criticism of Pakistan, of having hosted the Taliban, not having been able to change uh, their ideology. So it's a number of factors that has really... Um, uh, un unfortunately, affected the uh, the Taliban, who have really not emerged from the past, and their whole attitude is still dictated in in terms of what Mullah Omar dictated. Now they are faced with the problem of actually ruling Afghanistan. How are they going to rule? What kind of system do they want to bring about? Will it be at all consultative with the people of Afghanistan? Will there be a, a, a lawyer jirga, a grand meeting of the tribal elders? And this is going to backfire again on Pakistan, unfortunately, um, because of mistakes made by the military in, in earlier days, the failure to um, uh, really address the whole Taliban issue. I mean, this, there was just a gung-ho policy of believing that the Taliban are pro-Pakistan, so they're anti-India, and that's all great. That's exactly what Pakistan wants. Not understanding that what 
the, the, the remnants of such a policy could prove to be extremely negative for other parts of Pakistan's policy making. And how, how do you see, um, you know, this Afghanistan seemed to be, you know, uh, reasonably high on policymakers' agenda to some degree. I mean, there were certainly officials in the Biden administration that wanted to forget about Afghanistan as quickly as possible, but it did seem to be on people's agendas to some degree a few weeks ago. But now, of course, with Ukraine, that's subsuming an enormous amount of attention in Western capitals. I mean, do you, th- do you see there's a danger now of not just Afghanistan, but the region more broadly slipping from uh, people's minds? And if so, what would be the result of that? Well, I think that's happening as we speak. I mean, you know, you've got some very dire hotspots, Yemen, Afghanistan, and, but now everything has been subsumed by Ukraine. And, uh, I mean, you know, uh, President Putin has gone to war with his own people uh, with, and, and, and a neighboring country. And, uh, um, and, and the extent of the, the damage and the, uh, the bombing and the casualties in U- Ukraine have been mind-boggling. So I can understand the importance of, of Ukraine, but uh, what needs to be uh, done for Afghanistan is the mobilization, um, at least, at least, but the mobilization of banks and aid agencies to at least allow the money that has been sanctioned um, to reach Afghanistan, and and, and that needs a, a, a big uh, a support from the United States and. Uh, we're not seeing that, frankly, at the moment, and that's half the problem. There is money in the pipeline, there's food in the bazaar, but people can't afford to buy the food and people can't uh, reach for that money in the pipeline. And Ahmed, could we uh, come back to Pakistan to, to, before we close? Um, if you look at back at Western policy over the past few decades, it seems to have swung between sort of, uh, you know, trying to keep the Pakistani army close, recognizing, as you say, Pakistan's nuclear power. And then you've had other periods of time, particularly under Trump, where US aid to the military was cut off, much harder line. And yet, uh, neither seems to have sort of dramatically changed the Pakistani military's perceptions of its core interests. Now, you also have the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, listing Pakistan for its inaction on some of the militant groups that we talked about, which seems to shape Pakistani calculations to some degree. But if you look back at Western policy on Pakistan, um, I mean, there's now a new government in Islamabad. What should sort of Western capitals, how should they approach the new government and how should they approach Pakistan policy more broadly? Well, you know, I I think it's um, uh, Western governments have been learning uh, how Pakistan has pursued a two-track policy over the years. And what we're seeing is that uh, um, Western governments are now themselves pursuing a two-track policy towards Pakistan. That is, at, at one level, being very accommodating, enlisting the help of the Pakistani military in issues like Afghanistan and others, and on the other hand, being very uh, critical of, of Pakistan's um, harboring of militants, uh, etc. So, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of weird. I mean, Pakistan was the, uh, was the genius at uh, pursuing a two-track policy, being able to keep the uh, Americans on board, but also hosting a lot of anti-American elements in, in both the, the political spectrum, but also in, in the mountains and, and in the fields. And, um, 
So uh, the West is really pursuing a two-track policy, keeping the pressure on Pakistan through FATF, through the IMF and the World Bank, um, and and uh, uh, hoping that Pakistan will genuinely change and end this two-track policy. I don't see it really happening immediately. And of course, you know, India plays the leading role in determining Pakistan's foreign policy. Um, and especially the military's foreign policy. The military take all the decisions on foreign policy, but in particular, they take control of policy on it towards India. Right now, Pakistan is trying to get the Modi government in New Delhi to have a dialogue with Pakistan. We haven't spoken to each other for three or four years now. I think there's a lot of frustration in the in Washington and London and other places that the two countries are not being able to get together. But uh, this this whole two-track policy remains part of Pakistan's inheritance from the Cold War, which is that we have to maintain a strident tone against India, in which case militants are needed, um, all sorts of you know second-track uh, policies are needed, um, and yet at the same time we have to be friendly towards the West. Uh, to convince them to support us on issues such as Kashmir. Uh, and I think what is now becoming much more acceptable, certainly in the military, is that uh, uh, Pakistan definitely needs uh, an economic opening with India. Uh, only trade with India and the benefits of Indian investment and other things would help um, uh, Pakistan develop its economy. And Ahmed, if you think now of Pakistani foreign policy more broadly, and sort of particularly how it's dealing now with some of the fallout from Russia's war in Ukraine, yet more tension piled on top of already uh, fraught geopolitics. I mean, how should Pakistani leaders, the new prime minister, manage the relationship that Pakistan needs with the West, as you say, because of the aid, because of the financial institutions, with the ties it needs to China for the investment and infrastructure, with the hope that you talked about earlier of establishing better relations with Russia as uh, another hedge against India? Well, I think Sharif is more, most likely to, uh, to back the traditional friends of Pakistan, which includes the Chinese and the, uh, the Americans. And I'm sure we, we will get a, a tough statement on Ukraine from Sharif. Um, but at the same time, uh, Russia was, before Ukraine, Russia was offering... A, uh, a, a basically an economic tie-in with Pakistan. They wanted to build a pipeline from Central Asia, gas and oil pipeline from Central Asia uh, towards Pakistan and India, uh, which would have been hugely beneficial to both countries. Um, <clears throat> and Pakistan doesn't want to uh, destroy or undermine its its potential to get economic projects from, from Russia um, you know, uh, for the sake of pleasing the Americans. But right now, there's no question that the, the Russians are going to um, need every penny they've got. And they're not going to be in a position to help Pakistan with funding for oil projects or anything like that. So I think, you know, we, we, we have no reason to be particularly in the Russian camp right now. I think uh, uh, Pakistan should see where, you know, where the, the, the dollar and cent is coming from. And it's coming from the West in the United States. And this huge budget deficit, inflation, um, what dollars needed to purchase foodstuffs. Uh, this is the seventh largest country in the world. You have, the governments have to feed 230, 40 million people. Um, 
it, it's it, it's a serious business. And uh, uh, look at what has happened in Sri Lanka the last few days. Uh, food riots, literally, um, because of the dependency on imports that Sri Lanka has. And Pakistan could well be faced with that same problem. And there's not a danger for Sharif that if he looks as though he's moving too close to the US for good reasons that you outline, that could be used by Imran Khan, what, elections next year, you know, this could fuel his points that this is a, you know, a pro-Western government that's come to power through Western machinations and this would uh, backfire on uh, Sharif and the PMLN uh, next year? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, um, Imran is going to use this uh, as as a, a means to beat the the, the government with to beat the Americans and to maintain this high-profile uh, uh, anti-American agenda. Um, but I think at the same time, there's going to be people, uh, you know, this, this government is going to show, I'm sure, that this le- letter, which was believed to have condemned Imran Khan's government, uh, you know, is, is a fake. It is a diplomatic cable. It's not some conspiratorial uh, letter. At the moment, there's a lot of anger and bitterness amongst Imran's supporters at the way he was uh, dealt with. But I think over time, people will accept that this was perhaps uh, really not a genuine uh, issue and an, an issue that was cooked up you know, by Imran in order to try and keep himself in power. There's no doubt that there's going to be a confrontation between the two before the next election. And it could be a very messy election. And Ahmed, let me end with one final question. I mean, you're, you're one of the, as this conversation has made very clear, uh, really you know, among the foremost uh, experts and, and analysts of, of uh, the region. And how optimistic or pessimistic are you about where Pakistan, where the region stands today and its future over the next decade or so? Well, I think Pakistan has to get rid of its uh, economic dependency on the West. It has to be able to stand up on its own feet. Uh, I mean, there's no point in having grandiose uh, geopolitical aims when you can't feed your own people. And I think that that is the crux of it. And the, the other thing is militancy. I mean, militancy has to be uh, got rid of as, 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 as quickly as possible so that uh, um, uh, Pakistan can prosper. And, and, and develop its economy. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, governments, every government that has come into power has promised that and yet has failed to deliver. And part of the problem is, is, is the size of the military. You know, as long as Pakistan keeps spending such a huge amount of its budget and a very scarce budget on the military, the country is not going to be able to economically develop. Ahmed, it's really been a, a huge uh, privilege to, to, to have this conversation with you today. Really, thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much for having me. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Pakistan, including a recent piece on Imran Khan's departure, on Afghanistan, on Ukraine, of course, all on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at crisisgroup. Thanks very much to our producers, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy and Finn Johnson. And thanks, of course, to all our listeners. Please do get in touch with us, podcasts at crisisgroup.org. If you have any suggestions, feel free to leave us questions or comments. If you like the show, 
Don't be shy to give us a positive rating or review. And I hope you'll join us again next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.